0: Good morning, SNWTUL, New Orleans News and Views.
1: Hi, I'm Anita Johnson. Just a quick request before we get started. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you catch our podcast. That helps other people find us. And of course, give us a high rating. Thanks, and here's the show.
2: I'm Salima Hamarani and this is Making Contact.
3: I honestly don't want to be working right now because I have a 14-year-old who has a compromised immune system.
2: Not everyone's been able to stay home during the COVID-19 pandemic. Many people considered essential are still going to work even if they don't want to.
3: There's nothing that I would love more than to be able to stay home and take care of my daughters, but that's just not an option.
2: We take a look at some of these workers, what we call gig workers or drivers for app companies, and how they're doing economically and physically.
4: One of the things that is really obvious in in both studies that we've done is that these are people who are really living on the edge, sort of paycheck to paycheck.
2: We also talk about driver organizing as gig workers try to access sick pay, unemployment, and personal protective equipment. So today we're talking about the effect of COVID-19 on a particular type of essential worker, what we call gig workers.
4: These are people who work for platform-based companies like Uber and Lyft or DoorDash or Instacart.
2: That's Chris Benner.
4: I'm a faculty member in the Department of Environmental Studies and Sociology at UC Santa Cruz, and I also direct a research center called the Institute for Social Transformation.
2: And Chris just published a study.
4: When the coronavirus crisis hit, We had to put a halt on the survey we were running at that time and really put out a more immediate survey that's trying to understand how the crisis is impacting this workforce of what are often referred to as gig workers.
2: We wanted to understand whether or not drivers were able to access protective equipment and unemployment and other kinds of benefits because we wanted to know if they were safe. And that's important because as, quote, essential workers – were dependent on their help during quarantine.
3: I have spoken to many people who use Instacart, who asked me to leave the groceries outside, who tell me that their four-year-old has severe asthma, who tell me that their young child just went through a surgery. So I do believe that we are in every way, shape or form essential. There are people that absolutely cannot go get their groceries.
2: And that's George Gonzalez.
3: At the moment, I am an Instacart shopper, so that makes me a gig worker and I was formerly doing Uber. I still do a little bit of Uber Eats on the side.
2: We met with George, virtually, of course, to talk about his experiences as a delivery driver. And together, Chris's study and George's personal story tell us that the situation for gig workers during COVID-19 is, well, kind of dangerous for a lot of reasons. Let's start with the study. So, Chris, tell me about how you um, gathered information. Was it through known drivers' groups or online?
4: We put out a survey and were uh, reaching out through networks of community organizations and labor organizations, as well as closed online Facebook groups. We actually tried at one point to do an sort of open social media-based recruiting strategy, and that survey got hijacked. So we had to sort of work through known networks of drivers.
2: Wait, Chris, what do you mean it got hijacked?
4: Well, two things happened. Uh, You know, one is someone put in place a bot or algorithm-based process for responding to the survey. So it was just clear that we had a bunch of bad surveys. They were all identical and put in place. So that was the first time. The second time, we actually discovered, because someone let us know, that someone was paying people to fill out the survey and giving them email addresses to fill them out, and actually giving very high ratings to the platform company. So we don't know who was behind that, but it was clearly sort of some suspicious responses.
2: Okay, can you tell me about the demographics you've discovered? Who's working for these apps?
4: It's a predominantly male workforce. In our survey, it's about 83% were, were men. A high level of immigrants in the survey, about 50%, are immigrants we weren't asking about documentation status but we can expect that a significant portion of those are undocumented immigrants almost 70 percent were people of color and over 30 percent are people with a college degree it means that 69 percent have no college degree
2: the demographic data tells us that a lot of app drivers need these jobs and aren't able to just stay home and not work even in the middle of a pandemic in fact, tracking studies have shown that the wealthy have been able to limit their movement during the shelter-in-place order far more than the poor. Here's George again.
3: Savings are pretty much impossible doing um, Uber and, and Lyft, just because car repairs are always going to be a thing. You know, it's part of what we signed up for. I suppose as an independent contractor, as far as rent, we're still paying rent here. I pay fourteen hundred a month in Sacramento. I honestly don't want to be working right now because I have a 14-year-old who has a compromised immune system. So there's nothing that I would love more than to be able to stay home and take care of my daughters, um, focus on helping them with their homework so that I could quarantine, especially for my 14-year-old's safety. But that's just not an option.
2: And in fact, he now has to work more than ever because on average, gig worker salaries are tanking.
4: Most people were losing significant income from before the crisis back in February. And we had some uh, measures that more than half of respondents had actually lost between 75% and 100% of their weekly earnings on the platform companies since February. And the other things that's happened is that with the rapid increase in unemployment, there's a large number of people who've moved in to trying to do that kind of work, because at least there's some work there. And so you have essentially a flooded labor market, which means that it's very hard to get enough hours. One of the things that is really obvious in, in both studies that we've done is that these are people who are really living on the edge, sort of paycheck to paycheck. We have a question in the survey that asked people you know, whether they have enough resources to handle an emergency expense of only $400 and only 30% roughly of people would be able to pay off immediately a $400 emergency expense. So clearly just one paycheck away from not being able to pay basic bills, utilities and and rent, et cetera.
3: It's very exhausting. We're kind of at the mercy of the people that we're kind of working for. A lot of times we work long hours and we're not getting tipped very well and that ends up putting us in circumstances where we're making well below minimum wage. I have three daughters. I have a 14-year-old, I have a six-year-old, and I have a four-year-old. Kids are very expensive. <laughs> and it's a—it's uh, even harder right now because I have to work more hours to make less, and my kids are not able to go to school right now. So just finding the time to help them with their homework, having to pay for more food, all of this is going down at a time where I'm making less than I've ever made. I think (laughs) I have no money. (laughs) It's been a it's been a very difficult circumstance. Going to food banks is something that I never really uh, foresaw in my future. And, you know, there's no shame in it, but it's definitely something that my family has counted on. There's a lot of things right now that are not getting paid.
2: (laughs) But it's not just the fact that gig workers aren't earning enough that's making their lives difficult at the moment. They also don't have benefits. Benefits, which on paper exist, but in actuality, are extremely difficult to access.
4: A large portion of people have no health insurance either, uh, about 17% in the most recent survey, and another 32% are are only getting health insurance through some kind of subsidized uh, system, through Medi-Cal or Covered California. So even before the coronavirus hit, they're clearly vulnerable. And in general, uh, independent contractors are not eligible for unemployment insurance. Now, with the passage of the Federal CARES Act, uh, independent contractors became eligible for unemployment insurance. But in our survey, we still found quite a number of people who were having, who had stopped working and were having a hard time getting unemployment insurance. And, you know, what we've seen is that, you know, nationally over the last five weeks, uh, more than 26 million people have filed for unemployment insurance it's a completely unprecedented scale of jump in that and, and many of the you know online application systems have been completely overwhelmed and if they're working and have some income well then they're not eligible for unemployment insurance so they're really in this tricky in between space that makes them very vulnerable in the current context
3: filing for unemployment seems like a, a heavy tackle it's taking a lot of people a long time to get their income. I know that numbers are not guaranteed. And furthermore, there's a long wait to get it. Uber is just one of those difficult things that make it very hard when applying for any kind of of help because we are independent contractors. So maybe that's lack of knowledge and I have to take accountability for that but I also don't feel as though these platforms make it easier on us. I don't feel like they do a good job trying to navigate us toward these healthcare options.
2: For George, it's too much of a gamble to try and wait for unemployment or other benefits to kick in. He'd rather work now while he's still able to, even if it's extremely dangerous.
3: I don't want to get backed up. I don't want to start looking for some kind of temporary forgiveness. And then as soon as everything goes back to normal, I have to meet that kind of back payment and continue to make my my regular payments. And as it is, it's very scary because once everybody is released back out into the public, who's to say whether or not people are gonna wanna take Uber.
2: One of the questions we had going into our interviews was how much responsibility the app companies are taking for the workers. And that was also a big question for Chris in his study.
4: Part of what we were asking about in this survey is what kind of protections were they getting from the platform companies they're working for to make sure they're being safe and healthy and that they're making sure the customers are being safe and healthy. And I have to say that was one of the most disturbing parts of that is you know, consistently people were reporting getting very little support from the platform companies themselves. Uh, They were taking some more precautions on their own initiatives around wearing gloves or using hand sanitizer, wearing masks.
2: George, have you contacted the app companies for help with things like masks and gloves?
3: Yes. Yes. I have reached out to Lyft. I have reached out to Uber and I have reached out to Instacart. In all three circumstances, it's become pretty much impossible. Instacart last week finally allowed me to request an order. And that was last Tuesday. And as of today, I still don't have it. So last Friday in Oakland, they were distributing hand sanitizer and masks. I'm in Sacramento right now because there's no work for me in, in the Bay Area. And I couldn't drive an hour 30 minutes just to go get hand sanitizer. So I had to pass up on that. So I called and I stayed on the phone for about two hours. I talked to three different people. And finally they said, there's nothing we can do regarding getting you a mask in Sacramento. It's extremely hard doing this on our own without any kind of backup from Uber, Lyft or Instacart.
2: You know, George made light of his situation a lot, maybe because he had to. He joked about not having any money, for example, But this is where I heard him get kind of angry.
3: They're not doing a single thing. Every single thing that happens is me. Every time that I spray my car with Lysol, that came out of my budget. Uber did not tell me to do that. They suggested and recommended that I cover my coughs. But every time that we're looking out for our community, that is something that we're doing out of the kindness of our hearts. That is just not something that Uber is, is doing for them.
2: Personal protective equipment such as masks, gloves, and disinfectant for millions of drivers would cost a lot of money. But a company like Uber, for example, is valued at at least $60 billion. So we reached out to about 10 app companies seeking their comments, but we didn't hear back from them in time. We did, however, go on their websites to check on the new coronavirus updates, and many companies are slowly starting to distribute protective equipment. Though from the drivers we talked to, It seemed like they'd been waiting for a long time, and some drivers had already gotten ill from transporting sick passengers. So we asked Chris what motivated people in his study to keep driving, but we also wanted to know what motivated them to stop driving, given all the economic repercussions that they face
4: you know it's clear that those drivers who stopped working were doing it for essentially two different reasons one is because there were so few jobs available that it didn't make it possible economically to do it and second is because of course they're afraid of getting exposed to the virus and i should mention that you know ride hailing drivers in particular are particularly vulnerable because they're giving rides to a lot of people who are traveling so coming in from different parts of the country and International flights and potential exposure to, you know, a, a wide variety of people. Uh, and then they're in an enclosed space, uh, their own automobile. We don't have really any data in the country that I know of that gives a breakdown of infection by occupation. We have some data from health workers, but other than that, uh, really not much. But I, I think we can assume that a lot of people doing this kind of ride-hailing work uh, are certainly are disproportionately exposed and potentially higher rates of of infection. And what happened quite early on uh, with the pandemic is the platform companies did announce a COVID-19-related paid sick leave for their drivers, but the restrictions around that made it very hard for many drivers to qualify for that. They had to be certified as uh, COVID-19 positive, either themselves or they could do it in some cases for taking care of family members But we know with the limits in testing that there are many, many people who have had COVID-19 or have it now, including with very serious symptoms, who are not able to get the tests to verify that. And in that case, they would not be eligible for the paid sick leave.
2: His answer about the rate of COVID infections among drivers stood out to me because I talked to George earlier. And here's what he said when I asked him if he was worried about getting sick.
3: I believe that I probably had COVID. I was really sick in March. So I had a passenger in the car who told me that her coworker had just caught coronavirus and that they had to send him home. So about three days later, I started getting a really bad cough and it turned into pretty violent fevers. I checked my temperature, it was 103.7, but it is by far the most sick I've ever been, which led me to uh, sleep in my car for two weeks in San Francisco. And I eventually went to the ER. They they did not want to test me for COVID because they said, well, it's been two and a half weeks. There's no point of giving you a test. Now I reached out to Uber, I reached out to Lyft to see if they were willing to help me get a test. They did not help me at all. The fact that I am at multiple grocery stores, I do about six runs every day, seven days a week. It is very scary. And I am super afraid of what's gonna happen if myself or my daughter were to suffer serious health issues because of COVID and the fact that very little seems to be getting done in regards to the platforms that make so much money from us.
2: You were just listening to Chris Benner from the Department of Environmental Studies and Sociology at UC Santa Cruz and the Institute for Social Transformation. You were also listening to George Gonzalez, a driver for Instacart and Uber. We're talking about gig work and essential workers during COVID-19 on today's Making Contact. Make sure you keep up to date on our shows and get behind the scenes information on our website, radioproject.org. And now back to our show. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're taking a look at gig workers and how they're doing during COVID-19. And from our guests in the first half, we mostly heard that they're not doing well. They feel like they've been working with that much support under very dangerous circumstances, and they're vulnerable because they're not considered employees. They're considered contract workers, which kind of means they're on their own. Now one of the interesting developments in the past few years in many states is the passage of laws designed to protect gig workers. So laws like AB5 in California, and restrictions on who's considered a contract worker in places like New Jersey. These laws have passed because of organizing organizing by drivers
0: and other gig workers. We
2: wanted to talk with one such organizer.
0: My name is Angela Vogel. I am a driver and organizer with Philadelphia Drivers Union. And we are an all-volunteer, all-driver-led union, specifically drivers that drive for Uber and Lyft.
2: And to end the show, we want to highlight this sort of new and visionary work and also talk about what still needs to change. Okay, so Angela, first off, let's talk about the gig economy pre-COVID-19 and how that's affected the situation many drivers are in now.
0: Right, so it's interesting that there's so much more attention now because the uprise of gig work actually happened during our last major economic downturn, post-2008. Even under the Obama administration, there was not enforcement of employee classification. And there was a lot of encouragement, you know, for people to go out and find work despite the lack of good-paying jobs. And many, many people turned to app-based work. What's happened with this pandemic is that it has essentially pulled the veil off of problems that were already existing, right? So it took a little sprained finger and turned it into a broken arm. Some states have done better than others in enforcing employment laws. So you take New Jersey, for example filed a lawsuit against Uber last year saying that Uber owed the employment taxes. So uh, New Jersey, as an example, was many steps ahead of creating the safety net that these drivers deserve. Just their employment tax bill would be $650 million. Had these things been addressed earlier in years preceding when drivers were saying that these kind of safety nets and these kind of employer-employee relationships existed, drivers would not still be waiting six weeks after losing their jobs for any kind of economic relief.
2: So you talked about, I think you called it employee designation. Can you talk about that more? What does that mean? What's a contract worker?
0: Right. So in the United States, many of our rights are connected to whether or not we are classified as an employee. So, for example, our right to have the company that pays us pay into our unemployment insurance to pay uh, stipends for health care, et cetera, no matter where you are, the determination between those two classifications depends on some kind of a test of how much control the employer has over your work. What happens with app-based work is that we don't have a manager standing there checking whether or not we came to work on time or not. And so many workers believe that just because they don't have to punch a clock and have a physical manager there, that that makes them an independent contractor. Apps have clouded the amount of control that many of these companies have over their workers. So, in essence, the app itself creates control. So, as soon as I log on, the app is telling me whether I did my job right based on the customer rating or whether or not I showed up on time, and it's penalizing us or rewarding us for doing what the app wants us to do. So the argument has always been that Uber and Lyft drivers are actually employees and that those companies exert a lot of control over our work.
2: Right, and that makes me wonder, how much does an average driver actually make in a year? Is that data out there?
0: So like we are constantly telling our regulatory agencies and legislators here in Pennsylvania, You know, legislators often use the lack of access to data as a reason why they cannot go to Uber and Lyft and hold them accountable. We're constantly trying to remind them that data is here. I can open up my app right now and tell you exactly how much I made over what hours, and we can figure average expenses for the average mile and the average vehicle. The IRS does it every year. So the data is out there. There is no state or federal agency aggregating that data in a purposeful manner. So actually in most states, the legislation that legalized Uber and Lyft, what we would call unregulated services, in most states actually has provisions that specifically protect uh, transportation network companies, Uber and Lyft, from having to share that data. Here in Pennsylvania, they don't even have to respond to right to no requests for data. Why? Because Uber and Lyft wrote the legislation.
2: Because, I mean, my question is, are people even making minimum wage? It's unclear.
0: And in many, many places, they are not.
2: Is there anything being done to force the companies to release any basic employment data on, for example, how much their workers are making or how many workers they have?
0: There are things being done. What's being done, though, is being led by driver organizing and activist organizing in our communities We are putting out all kinds of surveys um, to try to collect driver information. You know, we build our lists. Where it's not happening is at the government level, right? This pandemic unemployment assistance is the very first time that any states have made any effort to collect income data on Uber and Lyft drivers. And it's work that should have been happening for years.
2: And, and that's so interesting to me because you mentioned AB5 and these laws in New Jersey and Massachusetts, and it's becoming very clear that just because a law exists, it doesn't mean it's being used.
0: That's exactly right. And, and the enforcement has always been the question, and I think that AB5 really proved that. But you will hear from drivers in any state that they have filed complaints with their departments of labor that they have filed complaints with their attorney generals, that they have filed a complaint anywhere that someone can file a complaint to have employment classification enforced, and that there's a total lack of action.
2: Angela, are there laws being developed on the national level that would protect drivers and gig workers?
0: There is definitely a national coalition of driver-led organizations. I think at this time, given who are... (laughs) Federal administration is, you know, there's a pretty strong feeling that without overturning a little bit of the legislature and probably a new president, that it will would be very difficult to move these things forward. And that's why the current effort is much more on state by state, so that hopefully we can win some enforcement in one of these states to sort of set an example as to what can be done federally when uh, the political landscape is a little more conducive to that.
2: Okay, so then let's talk a little bit about organizing more specifically. And, you know, I was thinking about how it's sometimes difficult to organize new industries or traditionally ignored industries, for example, like domestic workers. What's been challenging about organizing gig
0: workers? Um, The biggest thing that I'm always trying to impart on trade union organizers is that in many trades, the work that they do that the workers do they're very proud of it and they build their identity around it right so if i'm talking to a steel worker or a nurse or a teacher being a nurse or a teacher or a steel worker is part of their identity the biggest challenge that we have with uber and lyft drivers other than the high turnover is the lack of association with that identity right We do have quite a number of members where being a driver is really part of their identity. But because of this app-based gig-type work, a lot of our members really have something else that they build their identity around, right? They're a student. They're an artist. (laughs) They're a parent. So it forces us to, rather than just look at this sort of conventional trade union organizing model, we are really forced into a whole worker organizing model meaning that I cannot just talk to them about what their experience is is driving. I also have to know, why do they drive? What is it in their life that they need this flexibility in hours, that driving was the thing that made sense? What is it that they are working towards that they're willing to go out and risk their life to make $10 on a trip if they're lucky? And I think that these are, if we go deeper in U.S. labor union history, And look at, like you mentioned, domestic workers and farm workers, that we see that organizing around the whole worker and their whole life and everything that brings them to that point that they're at work was historically what made the U.S. labor movement strong. And we need to revive that. Okay. And since I asked
2: you about what's been difficult about organizing, I'm also wondering what's been successful about organizing.
0: Recently... We did get Uber here in Philly to concede to pay the vehicle insurance for our core and oldest members, which are the Uber Black drivers. They are required to purchase their insurance through Uber, and their commercial policies are about $125 a week or so. And Uber has been paying that for, I think, six weeks now and has promised us another two weeks. But what's been most positive and exciting about it to me has been getting to discover new ways of doing things. And I think that like when I'm talking about organizing the whole worker, it's very exciting to me that drivers have really, even though they haven't been getting the amount of notice that they deserve, they have really been leading the way in developing new ways of organizing, because the old ways don't work for us.
2: You were just listening to Angela Vogel, organizer with the Philadelphia Drivers Union, and George Gonzalez, a gig worker with Instacart and Uber. And that does it for this edition of Making Contact. And we want to hear from you. What do you think about gig work and coronavirus? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is making contact. On an Instagram, we're making contact radio project. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Ayesha Chowdhury, Lisa Rudman, Catherine Steyer, and I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.
5: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, we're going to hear three archived but relevant conversations. In June of 2017, we spoke with Heidi Byrick, leader of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center, about the resurgence of white supremacist violence in the Trump era. We'll revisit some of what she had to say. Also on the show in June of 2018, we heard from sports reporter and author Howard Bryant. He'd just written a book about African-American athletes and social justice activism called The Heritage. We'll hear some of that conversation as well. And finally, in December of 2019, we talked with reporter Sharon Lerner, who covers health and the environment at The Intercept, about plastics recycling and the sketchy behavior of the industry behind it. That's all coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. We are in troubling times, listeners know, with people being attacked for simply saying that black lives matter, and a president encouraging those attacks. It's what many feared when Trump came into office, but at the same time we acknowledge that Trump didn't create the phenomenon of white supremacist violence. There's a whole history there that media should be using to shape their recording of present-day events, give them context, and hopefully put an end to the troubled individual trope to describe people who are, in fact, part of something larger. Counterspin talked about this in June of 2017 with Heidi Byrick, who leads the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Well, the last time we had you on, we talked about... How, when then-candidate Donald Trump was slow to disavow the Ku Klux Klan, media called it a stumble, uh, as though Trump had misspoken or was confused about the existence of white supremacy and its role in campaigns like his own. Now Donald Trump is president, and Southern Poverty Law Center, I understand, tracked some 900 attacks in his first 10 days in office— Well, no one thinks Trump invented right-wing extremism, but are we seeing maybe a new strain of an old disease?
1: Yeah, I don't think there's any question but that we are seeing a new strain of an old disease, and it was encouraged certainly by the Trump campaign and the hate incidents that broke out. You know, there's almost 900 of them, like you said, right after the election— was the result of the rhetoric in the campaign. I don't think anybody nowadays thinks that you can simply bash a population like Mexicans as Trump did, or Muslims, and not get a result that ends up in violence in some cases. And so that's the situation we find ourselves in, and we have revitalized white supremacist groups, white supremacist thinking in the mainstream. It's really been a horrible uh, turn of events that's occurred over the last 16 months.
5: Well, I know that you are not in the business of quantifying who is more violent than whom. That's kind of a mugs game and more a deflection from a conversation than anything. But you have suggested that white supremacy is an unusually combustible mental framework. What do you mean
1: by that? What we find again and again, in particular with domestic terrorist acts or heinous hate crimes like what happened in Portland, is that people exposed to white supremacy, people who suck it in, the Dylan Roofs of the world, the Jeremy Christians of the world, often go on to commit violent acts. If you just look at the list of domestic terrorist attacks, let's say since Timothy McVeigh in 1995, there's a handful that are the result of people who have radical interpretations of Islam. But the bulk of the incidents involve people who have come to view whites as superior and who view this country as essentially undergoing a race war, and they make these violent acts, they do these things in their minds to save the country, in particular for white people. It's a very insidious mode of thinking that justifies things like genocide, ethnic cleansing. And so it's not surprising that we would get violence out of people who come to believe in these ideas.
5: Well, if media were really concerned about domestic terror attacks per se, It seems that we would hear the name you just mentioned, Tim McVeigh, that we'd be hearing that night and noon, wouldn't we? Because, in fact, that attack was back in 1995, but Tim McVeigh is still sort of a figure in some of these circles.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Jeremy Christian had a a poem or a tribute to McVeigh on his Facebook page, The Cell of Neo-Nazis, which ended up with internecine battles and two men killed, that was in Tampa a week and a half ago. They had a picture of McVeigh in their office. And people seem to have forgotten some sort of amnesia after the 9 11 attacks, which of course were horrific. But up to that point, McVeigh's bombing in Oklahoma City was the largest loss of life ever in a domestic terrorist incident. You know, some 180 plus people were killed, including children. And after 9/11, it was as though this type of terrorism—of course, it continued to occur—but it was though it didn't matter, right? All the focus was on the Muslim community, on radical interpretations of Islam, and there was just a reluctance to understand that terrorism comes in more than one form. And of course, it's much easier to point the finger abroad or to a community that you can, you know, easily other and say is not part of us, meaning in recent years, the Muslim community. When you talk about white supremacy, you've got to take a hard look at our culture because it is endemic. And it was here from the day this country started, even before actually with English settlers and so on. And there just seems constantly to be a reluctance to treat that kind of terrorism and hate crimes, I might add, as seriously as what is influenced by groups like ISIS or al-Qaeda.
5: Well, and any thoughts on media? When I was booking you, I said I knew you'd be very busy, and I'm sorry for that in a way. I think that U.S. reporters should have a deep bench right now on white supremacist violence. It shouldn't be a concept that sort of springs up anew and then is forced on them and they need to look into it. You know, It it really is, of course, as a story, something that could keep a journalist busy every day.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, I have to say, um, you know, given the state of the media where there's been high turnover in newsrooms and new people coming in, that a lot of folks don't really have this more historical perspective on white supremacy, let alone to the 1990s. But we got to remember, it's only the mid 60s when we dismantled the legal framework that kept segregation, Jim Crow, and black oppression in place. So we are not that far from having written in law that black people should be treated worse than white people. And so I think that nowadays, if you're involved in covering American politics, you have got to know the history of the civil rights movement and something about American history. And you need to know the violence that has been coming out of groups like the Ku Klux Klan and others inspired by hate ideas, almost since the founding of the country to today. And sort of a fundamental thing to know about. I mean, I am somewhat happy because I've seen in certain newsrooms more specialization on these issues, Mm -hmm. largely in response to the Trump campaign, because they keep coming up, and because there's so much domestic terrorism, but we could use more expertise in the media ranks about these issues.
5: That was Heidi Byrick of Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, speaking with Counterspin in June of 2017. Some may be surprised to see professional athletes and coaches speaking out against police killings of black people. The Milwaukee Bucks basketball team launched a strike after the police shooting of Jacob Blake, quickly joined by other teams and the WNBA, which had already been taking visible actions in support of Black Lives Matter and racial justice. But despite the insistence of some that they shut up and dribble, black athletes have a history of political engagement and making use of their powerful platform. We talked about that in June of 2018 with sports reporter and author Howard Bryant, who'd just written the book, The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. Well, I appreciate the way that the book enmeshes sports history in social history. Three days after Michael Jordan's NBA debut in 1984 was the day the NYPD killed Eleanor Bumpers, a 66-year-old black woman with mental illness, for instance. Generally, the media separate sports, uh, literally and figuratively, from everything else that's happening. It's an escape. It's a different world. And key to the story you tell, sports, Americans tell themselves, is a meritocracy. We may have racial injustice in society, but by golly, on the field, all that matters is can you run or throw or hit. This idea that the job of the black athlete is in some ways to advertise U.S. equality, that's there from the beginning of the history of the heritage, isn't it?
6: It sure has been. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting in trying to figure out how to tell this type of story, because there's so much to it, is where do you start and how do you put this together? And for me, the genesis of this had been this revival of this heritage. If you're of a certain age, you remember Muhammad Ali and you remember the memories, of course, of Jackie Robinson, and you remember Bill Russell and all of these athletes, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, and the 68 Olympics. You remember these players being very prominent, and you remember them being advocates for African Americans. If you're of a different generation, if you were, say, born in the 80s or even, even the 90s, this revival, the appearance of athletes taking a political stance, being involved in their community, being involved in social issues on a national level, is completely foreign because you grew up with the Michael Jordans and Tiger Woods being the model. So for me, what I thought was really sort of interesting and important was to remind people that the black athlete has been involved in the political struggle from the beginning, and that these players have had a very special place in American history. The argument that I make in the the book is that the black athlete is the most important and most influential and most visible black employee in the 20th century, because they're the ones who were allowed to integrate the society, whether it was the military, whether it was education, whether it was swimming pools, it was the ballplayers who came first. And because of that, they've had a responsibility to stand up and to advocate. So we recognize them when they're not there, and we remember them when they are.
5: And with that comes this bind, you know, this visibility uh, as a real representation of integration and yet still being a black American. And in terms of the history and the beginning, I think a lot of folks would be very, very surprised to hear that it starts with Paul Robeson.
6: Absolutely. It starts with Paul Robeson, and of course, people don't realize that he played in the National Football League. He played football before he was the great baritone, before he was the great singer and the great the great actor and the great activist. And, and one of the only reasons that he left professional football was because the National Football League was integrated, and then it chose segregation until 1946. So when he played 1921 and 1922, football was integrated. And then by 1923, no blacks were allowed to play in the NFL for another quarter century. It wasn't just Robeson to me that I gravitated toward when tracing this this heritage. It was also the fact that the African-American athletes' political roots did not start with black issues. It started with Jewish issues. It started with World War II. It started with American athletes being asked to defend America against Nazism and, and Jewish athletes asking for solidarity against the Berlin Olympics in 1936. And also, of course, asking Jackie Robinson to denounce Paul Robeson in 1949 in support of, of America during the Cold War. So it wasn't until much later, it wasn't until you had Robinson in that testimony receive all the attention for his denouncing of Paul Robeson, but also inside of that testimony, he talked about inequality and police brutality and and mistreatment of African Americans and fairness and all of these things that would become the foundations of this heritage. It started with Robinson, but not along racial lines to begin with. It started with defending America.
5: I find Robinson's Who Act testimony to be maybe the most moving part of the book and such a clear um, first of all, a thing that's so misremembered. Completely. You know, um,
6: we chose to emphasize the part that made America feel good. Right. Which was, see, Jackie Robinson is a real American because he denounced Paul Robeson, the bad Negro communist. I don't even think we misremembered everything, we just chose to ignore it. And when I started to read that testimony, when I was doing the research, I was wondering, did I know this? I think I kind of knew this, but maybe I really didn't either. Right. And and that's what we do. We decide to omit. One of the great favorite colleagues and the, the great writer, David Marinus, once said to me that history writes people out of the story, and it's our job to write them back in. And I think that Robinson testimony is something that needed to be written back in.
5: Absolutely. Well, you know, history's moving along, and owners and teams are aware that integration is happening, but... I I like how you note that this idea that became popular and still holds sway that, oh, they're only looking for the best players, that that was fiction uh, always. And there's this note that Earl Wilson, when Earl Wilson was signed to the Boston Red Sox, the scouting report described him as a, quote, well-mannered colored boy, not too black, pleasant to talk to, close quote. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So you have have this story of integration, but then – Black athletes are making money, and some of them are making a tremendous amount of money. And so that gives them a bigger megaphone and at the same time more calls not to use it.
6: For caution, absolutely. And I think that's this tension that the black athlete has that even other black entertainers don't have. Why are we now talking about Oprah Winfrey as a potential presidential candidate? Because she has money. And we talk about Mark Cuban as a presidential candidate or Donald Trump as president or Michael Bloomberg as the mayor of of New York because they were all rich. When it comes to the black athlete, though, what we want from them in exchange for the money is silence. We don't want to hear from them. We want them to be quiet. We want them to shut up and play or shut up and dribble. And this is the one area where money is not affording you a bigger voice. And that goes back to this very interesting relationship that we tend to have with our sports figures, that there's an ownership to them that they don't necessarily get to be citizens, their job is to entertain us. And I think that's one of the areas where this heritage has become so polarizing in a lot of ways, is this feeling of ownership is now colliding with the fact that you have this new generation of black athletes, post Trayvon Martin, post Ferguson, post Eric Garner and Sandra Bland who are now citizens, especially thanks to the prevalence of social media. They're watching these viral videos just like the rest of us are on YouTube, and they're looking at this dash cam footage. And one of the things that one of the players, Tavon Austin, had said, who played for the St. Louis Rams when he came out in 2014 with the hands-up-don't-shoot gesture before a game, was it's hard for me to go back to my community knowing that this is going on, knowing that I've got a platform, and all my friends and family are looking at me going... People listen to you, and you're not saying anything. That's the heritage.
5: That was sports reporter and author Howard Bryant speaking with Counterspin in June of 2018. And finally, you may have heard that big oil companies are lobbying the U.S. to put pressure on Kenya to weaken its stance against plastic waste. While publicly claiming to strive for a world free of plastic waste, usual suspects like Shell and Exxon are seeking to use trade negotiations to circumvent rules limiting the so-called waste trade, which environmentalists say will mean turning Kenya and eventually other places in sub-Saharan Africa into dumping grounds. It's just the latest machination from a plastics industry that is almost as vigorous in their PR as in their despoiling of the planet. In December of 2019, we got some history from Sharon Lerner, who covers health and the environment for The Intercept. Well, I have to start with the crying Indian, not just because I'm a child of the 70s, but I didn't realize how emblematic it was of what's been a continued strategy of plastic industries around the question of, waste. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the backstory on that ad and the the context in which it appeared.
7: So that ad ran in 1971, and it was put out by Keep America Beautiful and the Ad Council. Keep America Beautiful is the group we think of as sort of a do-gooder group. Their mission, what they talk about is keeping our public spaces clean and free of litter. But it turns out that the group itself was begun by the beverage industry, several soda companies, National Soft Drink Association, and it came at a time when there was the beginning of an awareness of the plastic pollution crisis on the part of the public and it should be noted that the big plastics producers and users were actually aware of the fact that plastic was already accumulating in the ocean and was as quite a, a an ecological hazard so that growing awareness helped bond some protest in 1970 on the first birthday and you know, the folks who were concerned about growing waste wasn't quite so much plastic at that time. Uh, It was mostly cans that were being used. But the whole idea of using disposable packaging that you could have one drink of soda and then just throw out the thing that it came in was really new. And already activists were becoming aware that, wow, this crisis is going to affect us deeply. And, And they had a protest on the Coca-Cola company and staged Ecology Day, Ecology Trek, they call it, when they went to Coca-Cola's headquarters with these non-returnable bottles, some of which were plastic, I think, and some, again, cans. So here's this sort of growing awareness of this problem. And in 1971, that comes out and really flips the whole frame, right? So What they do with that ad and others before and after that really hit the same note is they really squarely put the blame of waste on individuals as opposed to the companies who produce the waste and profit from the products. And not coincidentally, the same companies that are funding Keep America Beautiful and funding the ads that are doing this shaming.
5: Yeah, it's interesting because it's not—first it, of all, it shows that there's been an awareness of the problem of plastic wastes since there's been plastics. It's not something that snuck up on the industry, which I found you know, kind of interesting. And then the idea that this ad that I think many people thought of as, golly, here's the industry kind of proactively engaging— One of the downsides, potentially, of what they do, and the idea that it was, in fact, a very targeted intervention was news to me, at least.
7: But beyond that, I would say that most people had no idea that it was coming from industry at all. Right. That message gives you this sense that, oh, we're just concerned citizens who really care about stopping trash. Well, in fact, it was coming from the companies that made that trash, and nobody had any idea. You know, there's no reason to suspect that it came from them at all. You know, it very effectively makes people upset about the fact that we are littering and destroying our earth. But what it does is leave the viewer thinking, I feel terrible about my role in that. What it doesn't do and what was going on in the background, too, was at the same time, the beverage industry was actively fighting these proposals, one, to ban the production of single-use containers back then, but also bottle bills, which basically this effort to put some of the responsibility for recycling the containers back onto the companies that make them. And generally speaking, these companies don't want that responsibility, both because of the expense of it and because of the hassle of it. So very consistently over the decades, they have fought these bottle bills and very successfully. And, you know, right around this 1971 ad they were actually, the lobbyists for the industry had effectively swatted down national legislation or a proposal that would have been, again, disposable containers and would have put forward a bottle bill on a federal level.
5: Well, yeah, I almost skip over the fact that, of course, it was keep America beautiful, which no one was thinking of really as a front group um, or thinking about front groups uh, at all um, for industries. We saw it as just kind of consumers and concerned citizens, you know, uh, taking up the effort. Uh, Well, we think of recycling as local in some ways. I, I feel like that's the association when, in fact, it's a big business, which is, of course, international. And some of the realities that you and others have reported on about the business of recycling, which is being presented to us you know, as the, as the answer, but the reality of the business of plastics recycling are heartbreaking. Like the Indonesian islands where Coca-Cola has pushed their products and they now are littering the ground and then villagers burn that waste, literally poisoning themselves and the food chain, right? Right.
7: Yeah, and another sort of very upsetting point here is that in many cases especially when you're talking about Coca-Cola and these remote islands, it is sometimes Coke itself, but it's also sometimes bottled water. And these many places don't have potable water and thus are literally forced to survive on this bottled water, which in many cases we're talking about bottles that they very successfully get to these remote places, but then don't successfully remove from these places. And then there's also... A lot of really good reporting on the fact that these companies actually drain aquifers and then sell what ought to be a very you know, public human resource back to people in plastic bottles at expense and sometimes expense that they can't afford.
5: It's very dystopian, and I wanted to say, you know, there's no hyperbole here. You wrote, quote, plastic waste is now widely understood to be a cause of species extinction, ecological devastation, and human health problems, close quote. And, you know, given that it's virtually all from oil and natural gas and coal, it also contributes to climate change. And it's in that context that we're talking about industry pr to convince people that recycling is sufficient. I agree. One of many things that I found upsetting in your piece from July was the way that the plastics industry is gearing up for as you put it the fight of its life and in fact you were at an association conference in which the keynote came from an expert in actual warfare. What what is that telling us? <laughs>
7: Yes, I thought that was an interesting choice. No one explicitly, you know, explained why they were why they had made this choice. I mean, this was someone who had been the captain of a boat that was under attack, and you know, and he told the details of this brutal attack, and then talked about the USS Cole, and then talked about basically his success, you know, despite the adversity that he faced. He talked about in the end. Piloting his ship away, you know, with the national anthem blaring and going on to victory is basically a hard-fought victory is the way he described it. And I think that the plastic industry very much does feel under assault right now. Really, there's this growing awareness of how immense and terrible this problem is we're all facing. And, And as you just laid out, it's a health problem. It's an environmental problem. It's a racial justice problem at this point because of the way it's distributed throughout the country and the world.
5: That was journalist Sharon Lerner from The Intercept, speaking with Counterspin in December of 2019. Before her, you heard Howard Bryant and Heidi Byrick, And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Erica Rosato. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin.